This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. We're really lucky today. We've got geek royalty with us. Uh, we've got Robert Shifreen. Hello, Robert. Hello there. Oh, people will know Robert Shifreen as the Prestel hacker, probably. And these days, you're a security consultant. You run a, a security firm. Yeah, I talk. I talk to companies about security, write about it, do articles about it. And you've written a couple of books. Did a book a couple of years ago called um, Defeating the Hacker, which I sort of build as how to keep people like I used to be um, out of your computers, <laughs> um, which, which thankfully sold very well. It was quite nice to have done that. And are you thoroughly reformed now? Thoroughly reformed, poacher turned gamekeeper and all that. Um, it wouldn't be desperately sensible for me to carry on hacking. Um, there's a few people out there who don't like the fact they didn't manage to get me first time around and are looking forward to having another try. Um, certain BT people who are probably now retired. But um, also I've had my 15 minutes of fame, so that's it, done now. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking to do other things. And how long ago was it? I mean, Prestel... Uh dates it somewhat anyway but how many years ago was was your uh, your big exploit most people probably haven't heard of prestel nowadays um listeners <laughs> to our podcast have because me and we talk about prestel all the time because we're really obsessed with it um we should yes. bring it back let's have a campaign to I bring know, it back because we played this game at school which we talk about almost every week don't we um and it was uh it was some sort of adventure game where you had to book a flight and do, do you just ring any kind of bell is this the hacking adventure type game and I can't think what it was called it was on Commodore 64s and Spectrums and things yeah um, I, I, I've definitely played it at school on an Acorn Archimedes um, and I yeah in well. it you had to book a flight on a, on a Prestel system <laughs> And maybe break into it. I don't know whether it was based on you. Um, I don't know. It was about that time, wasn't it? I mean, hacking, hacking was all the rage. And when hacking became the rage, then they started doing computer games based on it. And now, of course, you've got the likes of, of MI5 having web-based computer hacking games and exercises in order to... well. Uh, uh, so they say, in order to gauge the standards of new recruits. It's probably in order to hack people and see what they're up to and find the decent <laughs> hackers and arrest them. Who knows? Um, but yeah, yeah, hacking's always in the news, always has been. And equally, the mistakes that people made on their computers 25 years ago that were letting me hack in, they're still making. So, the, you know, it's an interesting subject. There are new things, there are old things. Um, Prestel itself, I think it was launched in, what, 1979 by BT, forerunner of the internet, a bit like a dial-up. Um, paid-for version of CFAX and Oracle. Well, sort of yeah. teletext yeah, exactly. plus your telephone line. Yes, exactly. Um, Dial-up, you paid for it per page, or some of it was free, and had about 50,000, 60,000 subscribers. It was supposed to be the uh, British version of the French thing called Minitel. Mm-hmm. Um, the French put lots of money into it, they gave away lots of terminals to the public, and it replaced printed telephone d- directories, which saved lots of money. It was a great idea. There was lots of porn on it too, and for, you know, what more could you want? Lots of telephone numbers, lots of porn. It did very well it took off it made money it was a commercial success um the british version didn't take off didn't become really a commercial success and um and it died a death unfortunately but yes i hacked into it 25 years or so ago now um not through any particularly desperately clever thing that i was doing but mainly because people left passwords where they shouldn't have done i was i ended up being system manager of a test computer and managed to get into all their systems hacked into the hacked into the system manager area got to be Prince Philip, or at least got to the point where it said, good morning, HRH, the Duke of Edinburgh, welcome to Prestel, having, me having signed in as him, and then told the press about it, and everything just took off. And why did you tell the press about it? You could have just had quite a lot of fun pretending to be Prince Philip. <laughs> ordering people around and yeah, sending out I was uh, I was working for France. yeah exactly um, I was working for a computer magazine publisher I was, I was an IT journalist at the time I wasn't out to be a hacker I wasn't out to cause damage um, 
I ended up in court. There was a huge big court case. Okay, it cost a couple of million pounds. But what I actually was charged with, because there was no Computer Misuse Act back when I was doing it in 84, 85 when I was charged, I was charged with defrauding people out of eight pounds worth of computer time over a two-year period. So it was a very, very important test case. It led to a change in the law. It cost a couple of million pounds. It involved the law lords. It involved 10 judges. It involved a couple of QCs and so on. But in the, at the end of the day, I defrauded people out of eight pounds worth of computer time at 50 pence a page. That's all I did. There was an important precedent to set, but I wasn't dangerous. I didn't. I didn't really want to be dangerous. Mm. Um, I was doing it because it was there. You know, I, it was the ultimate hacking game. There I was on my two or three hundred pound home computer, linked to the telly, linked to the old black and white telly, mm. um, dialing in as a legitimate customer to eight million pounds worth of mainframe computers. And the only reason I could see what I could see is because that's what my account let me see. Wouldn't it be good? I thought if I could see the system manager stuff and the secret stuff that normal customers can't see and that's what led me to getting passwords and having a bit of fun and how did you get hold of them and did you have to work at finding them so was it just literally a chance encounter or were you looking when you found it it was a chance encounter. I wasn't the desperately clever hacker that people like to think I am and that I occasionally say yeah I'm afraid I was um, I was doing some freelance work for Micronet um, which was an area of Prestel aimed at computer users um, if you ever had a Sinclair and a Commodore and a BBC computer back in the 80s you might well have dialed up to micronet and paid your six pound a month or whatever it was um i was doing some freelance work for them writing stories on their system i was in their offices very late one night very early one morning and um, i was testing a modem i was testing an acoustic coupler um the old thing where you take the phone off the hook and stick the receiver into a into a plastic box um but i always laugh when i watch things like neighbors from 20 years ago when they when they had a hacking story and the acoustic coupler was actually a box of tissues covered in sticky back plastic (laughs) Um, it was the worst prop I'd ever seen. And so I was testing this modem acoustic coupler, dialed up the Prestel network on my modem. It said, hello, welcome to Prestel. Please tap in your customer ID. Didn't care what I wanted to type in. I was just testing the modem. So I just tapped in the number number two key 10 times. And it said, thank you very much. That's a valid ID. What's the password? Um, <laughs> that's the sort of mistake I was saying that people were making 20 years ago and they still make. You know, Don't say to somebody, get your, pass- get your user ID right, then we'll work on the password. Ask for both at once. And um, if there's a mistake, say there's a mistake, but don't tell them where the mistake is. So it said, yes, you've got a valid ID, a customer ID, 10 number twos. Okay, what's the password? I know they're all four characters. Let's try four twos. Didn't work. Let's try one, two, three, four. Um, And it worked. So there I was testing a modem, 10 twos for a user ID, one, two, three, four for a password. And it said, good morning, because it was past midnight by now. Um, We always work late, mainly because hackers, of course, used to start work after six o'clock in the evening when it was cheap rate phone calls. Um, So there I was, one o'clock in the morning. Good morning, Mr. G. Reynolds. Welcome to Prestel. I'd hacked someone's account. And that's how I got the bug. And they just happened to be someone who was employed by BT? Yeah. Mr. G. Reynolds was a BT employee. He had, it turns out, access to various pages of information on Prestel that mere mortal um, consumers and customers like myself didn't have, went into his closed areas, found the phone numbers for the Prestel test computers, because despite the fact that there was only about 50,000 customers, but they had a network of about six enormous mainframes between them, because they'd spent a lot of money on Prestel, had BT. There was another three or four mainframes that they used for test, and Mr. Reynolds had all their phone numbers. So I dialed up a test computer, it said, hello, welcome to the test computer, please log in. I thought, aha, <laughs> 10 twos, one, two, three, four, didn't work. Yeah. Hackers are nothing if, if not obsessive. Well, I certainly wasn't. So I tried every Friday night after six on the dot, um, dialing up this test computer, determined to get into it. And it took me 10 months. 
And finally, after this come about October, November of that year, because I'd started in February, dialed up test computer, it said, hello, welcome to the Prestel Gateway test computer, please log in, PS, the system manager password is blah, 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 the system editor password is blah, blah, blah. They didn't actually say that, there was 14 digits on the screen, and before one of them it said S-M-A-N, which turned out to be system manager, and before the other one it said S-E-D colon, which was system editor. Um, you think putting post-it notes, you think putting passwords on a post-it note is bad, they'd put the passwords for the system manager account of a mainframe computer on the login screen, <laughs> because they thought, where can we put this so that we can't lose it? And that's where they put it. So it said, please log in, and um, okay, if, if, you, if you want, that's what I'll do. So I typed in the numbers after, after SMAN, and it said, good morning, system manager, welcome to Prestel. And that's how I became a um, super hacker. And um, the other the other major bug that was in... the hours in. Um, I'd, I'd put the hours in, I suppose. That was my reward, wasn't it? Um, but, and then, of course, when you're system manager, you can, not only, you can access all the customer files. You could even access the password files. It would even tell you what people's passwords were, which was quite fun. So um, I said, OK, give me Prince Philip's password. Uh, give me Prince Philip's user file. And it gave me all his details. It gave me his address, which, of course, everyone knows. And... Um, <laughs> What, as to why there was an account on the, name, in, on the system with the name of Prince Philip, nobody quite knows. We think he was probably there at the launch in 1979 and somebody had yeah. given him a freebie. He wasn't a regular user of Prestel or email. And I don't think that's how he used it to look up his phone numbers. And was, was, his, was the access of his, of his uh, account used in the case? No, it wasn't, because if they'd mentioned his account, then... Um, They'd have had to have, we'd have called him as a witness, and right. he probably wouldn't have wanted to do that. But that would have been really fun. <clears throat> that would have been great fun, <laughs> but sa- sadly not. So um, there I was, sister manager of Prestel, looked up Prince Philip's password, logged in as him, and then I just looked up all my other friends and colleagues and associates' passwords and logged in as them for no particular reason, just for a bit of fun. Um, you know, every boy has a little black book full of girls' phone numbers. <laughs> I had a black, fo- black book full of about 500 Prestel passwords and two girls' phone numbers. It was quite sad, really. <laughs> And then I told my friends at Micronet, you know, I've managed to hack into the Prestel test computer. And of course, what Prestel was also doing is that they were using live data on the test computer. So when I was looking at people's passwords on the test computer, those worked on the live system as well. So I looked up my friends' passwords and my friends' systems and whatever, um, told, Pres- told Micronet about it. They told their, their colleagues at Prestel. And I thought Prestel would knock on my door and say, thanks very much, that's really useful. You've spotted a major security flaw. Um, have a free account, have a box of chocolates. And in, um, unfortunately, what I didn't know is that a couple of months before, the Metropolitan Police in London had set up the UK's first computer crime unit and were looking for a decent first case. And so Prestel phoned them. And they knocked on my door and took away the contents of my uh, bedroom in 41 black plastic sacks in three Volvos and charged me with forgery. Hacking wasn't illegal. Forgery was. So the police said, OK, well, if he's typing in someone's password, that must be a bit like forging their signature. Um, Let's do him forgery. And and that's why we ended up in court for 11 days as part of a three-year legal battle. And what was the verdict? I was originally convicted. The jury said that typing in passwords is like forging signatures, um, although if you read the very small print of the section one, I think it is, of the forgery and counterfeiting Act 1981, which I used to know off by heart, um, we didn't think it covered it because we thought what our defence was is that <clears throat> if you forge something, it's like a physical thing, like a banknote or a cheque. Mm-hmm. You can't forge a password that's only stored in a chip for a microsecond while it's checked. Mm-hmm. And the appeal court, we, we, we went to the appeal court, we went to... Um, 
the Court of Appeal and the Lord Chief Justice said, you're quite right, it's two different things, and threw it out. Because it's a test case, the prosecution can then appeal again to the House of Lords. So, so we went back to the House of Lords in 1987, and the Lords said, no, you're quite right, um, computer hacking is not forgery, and threw it out again. So as I like to say, we won 2-1 on aggregates. <laughs> and then it was official, computer hacking is not illegal, computer hacking is not forgery, um, so in comes the Computer Misuse Act um, 1990, which we now have. So if you go around hacking now, if you go around planting viruses now, then it's illegal. Um, but that's as a, re- as a result of my acquittal. Did I read that you were investigated by GCHQ and MI6 and stuff? Was that true? I cer- not what I know of, but then most <laughs> people don't. Um, I certainly had my phone tapped. Um, this is in the old days of phone tapping, when I picked up the receiver once to make a phone call. Picked up the receiver, how old-fashioned. Um, picked up the receiver once to make a phone call, and somebody said, damn, I think the wires are in the wrong order on the other end of the you line oh. and then um, a few days later I picked up the receiver to make a phone call and somebody said here mate do you want me to record this one that's a giveaway isn't it oh, wow. um, <laughs> and of course if you speak to BT they say well of course we weren't tapping his phone it was just a coincidence but yeah oh. they were doing things like that but the official story is that once they suspected me then they put a call logger on my line and they were recording what I did and who I spoke to and the calls I made but beforehand they were obviously recording my calls um, it was pretty obvious yeah there again they knew who I was because I never made any secret of it um, you know I went I went on the telly um, I was on Micro Live if you remember with Ian McNaught Davis on a um, Saturday morning with John Cole and co on and co and um, you know talked about the hacking and I'll, I'll, ironically they'd said to me do you want to disguise your voice and do you want to, do you want to do you want me to have you in silhouette and things and actually I just came out of hospital because I just had some surgery on my nose and um, so I couldn't speak properly anyway so it was fine so nobody, <laughs> no, nobody knew who I was but no I didn't make any secret of the fact um, I told all my friends and family what I was up to they thought it was great fun um, so the police knew who I was but they wanted they wanted a conviction they didn't get one but they've, they've got a fair few now. There you go. It's quite strange being in the middle because you lose sense of what's moving and what's still. Yeah. Making me feel a bit dizzy. Yeah, it looks like it's moving amazingly slowly if you look at the middle of the wheel. Yeah, that's horrible. I feel like I'm moving this way. <laughs> like I'm going yeah, outside. Yeah, it, you get dizzy very quickly. Do you know how, what speed it rotates? Is it like 20 minutes per revolution or something? It's not very fast, though. It's not. No, it's definitely not like a fun Ferris wheel. It's not one that will... Uh, it's no, it's no aeroplanes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we're passing uh, some sort of noodle bar on the left. Yeah, that was uh, the sound you heard uh, overhead. That was a helicopter, presumably Alan Sugar going to work. Hey, that's how he does it. That I've is. seen The Apprentice. Yeah. Where he works in the gherkin. (laughs) (laughs) He flies into the roof of the gherkin every Monday morning. We should get on. I was thinking this. We should get Alan Sugar on the show and just talk about his old computers and the Amstrad days. Not talk about anything that he's done since. Ask him about why the Amstrad didn't sell as well as it should have done. And uh, and then every time he tries to talk about what he's doing these days, just (laughs) just cut him off. Feigned disinterest. Yeah, he's got all the recorders broken. (laughs) Sorry, what you saying about Amstrad in the uh, 1985? (laughs) <laughs> Tell me about your first fax machine, Alan Sugar. Yes. Oh, that'd be great. You can talk about the uh, the, the CPC 464 and, and the subsequent disc add-on thing that you can get for it. You know what we could do? Mm-hmm. We could pretend that we think he's Clive Sinclair. <laughs> that'd be great. We should get them both on <laughs> without telling either of them. That'd be great. Get them on the oh, same evening. That'd be amazing. So I think Clive Sinclair would be really good, but I don't know... Um, I don't know how we get him. <laughs> I think we have to tranquilize him and bag him. <laughs> He's not likely to want to come on, is he? 
We're coming up to our 50th episode on Chiffron Stock now and to celebrate we've decided to have a live games night which will be taking place this Monday the 18th of October uh, downstairs at the Southwark Rooms which is 60 Southwark Street, London, SE1, 1UN starts at 7 o'clock bring a game there'll be all sorts of games being played there'll be loads of people there previous guests uh, people off the forum people from Twitter everybody just loads of geeky types having loads of fun so please come it's going to be amazing I'm in computers at the moment you're working in this field you're working in security are you following the news about uh, news of the world and how they're broken into mobile phone a voicemail. Yeah, I mean, I was I was following it a few years ago when it when the story actually broke. Um, again, it comes down to exploiting weaknesses in the system and not being desperately clever. They weren't hacking into mobile phones. They weren't doing anything clever to get into these voicemails. Um, the way it used to work, you used to buy your mobile phone um, on your con- on your X pounds a month contract. It used to come with voicemail. If you want to change your voicemail password, if you want to change your voicemail system, you dial into the voicemail, you type in the password that's normally 0000, and you can do things. And nobody ever changed their default password. So what? And once you've got someone's mobile phone number, then you've got access to their voicemail if they haven't changed their password. So any reporter who had any celebs' mobile phone number, they used to get into their voicemail by dialing double zero double zero and listen to their messages, and that's how they used to get scoops. Um, it wasn't desperately clever. Um, I suppose the first person to think of it was, but it wasn't desperately clever. It wasn't desperately high tech. I suppose it wasn't hacking in a way. I suppose legally it was, but it wasn't really desperately um, high tech in any way. And that's what they were they, they were apparently doing it's quite retro like, i like the idea of because all this phone hacking stuff's been in the news like you say lately again and it's quite like oh phone hacking it's like something <laughs> from the that? early 80s yeah, yeah brilliant freaking and stuff did you do freaking blue boxing. as well as you that? That stuff? never yeah. did never did the freaking and the blue boxing um i know some people who did where you could dial certain numbers and get free phone calls mm-hmm. um lots of companies had a special line on their switchboard where you dial this number and it got you a dial tone um, I think the BBC had one at one point and probably still do so that if you're based in London you could dial the BBC switchboard and you got yourself an international dial tone for dialing Bosnia or wherever uh, which was used by reporters and those sort of things got to leak out and other people were using them so um, to make free phone calls all over the world and I'm sure it does go on but um, in those days telephone exchanges were all bits of wire and plugs and ladies in posh coats sitting there plugging wires in holes and it was fairly easy to take advantage of these systems if not the women um, nowadays because it's all high tech and they've got an awful lot more monitoring equipment on there then it's much harder to do that and you certainly can't do the blue boxing thing and the, the old Captain Crunch stuff if you remember that as well yeah. certain frequency that would give you a dial 2600 of course 2600 absolutely yes um Again, for those who don't remember, it was a long time ago. You could buy yourself a little whistle or a tone generator, play a 2600 hertz tone down the um, receiver of a phone box, and the exchange would think you'd put 10p in, you could start making a phone call. There was also, and, and then of course, when the first push button phone boxes came in in the UK, you could go into a phone box and you could type something like star 65535 hash or whatever it was. And you got £655.35 credit um, on, on the phone, um, which was a debugging feature they put into the phones. And they thought, well, you know, one of the big problems then and now was a thing called security by obscurity. Somebody thinks, I know, let's just have a phone, a little keypad combination that gives you £655 credit on a phone box. Nobody will find it. 
let's write the system manager password on the locking screen, nobody will find it. And of course, the trouble is, A, people will find it, and B, you don't know that they found it until it's too late. Um, it's the same with encryption. Some of these encryption systems, um, no one, you know, they rely on secrecy, and no one quite knows how they work until someone does, at which point everything that's ever been protected with that system is now broken and open to the world. So not a good way of protecting systems. Snack time. Hello, it's snack time, mm, and I'm hungry. We've got some questions sent in uh, by listeners. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, Paulie G from the forum, which uh, for, for those of you out there not currently addicted to it, is forum.shifferandstop.co.uk. Uh, he asks about the Muller inspired by New York cheesecake confection, mm. which uh, he's discovered at work. He describes it as a yoghurt with lots of little soft lumps in, like there was an accident between the yoghurt and the rice lines at the Muller plant. I'd encourage you to give these a go so you can confirm my suspicion that they are the foodstuff that most closely resembles the texture of vomit. Is this, uh, is this something you're familiar with? We can't cover all snacks on the show. No. Uh, <laughs> that would be insane. I mean, I do try to sample as many of them as possible, and I, I, I tried these. The most remarkable thing, and obviously I've kind of learned this over many years in the field, is that generally... If a food manufacturer is using the phrase inspired by, <laughs> that's a euphemism for does not taste of. <laughs> so inspired by cheesecake does not taste of cheesecake. <laughs> and with a hint of is, uh, again, go, go somewhere else on that scale. So on the forum, we have got entire threads dedicated to snack things here, by the way. People just keep sending them in. It's really okay, popular. D- Dave, you should join the forum. Uh, I, I mean, Why I, not? I, have a look, Dave. I, 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 I do. No, I mean, uh, like, I, I look at them. Um, you're not a member, I notice, because I can see the list of users. You're not on that list. Well, you say that, Ro, but how do you know I don't sign up under a false name? Like, have you adequate uh, eliminated or, or, all the IP addresses. everybody else. Are you Paulie G? <laughs> <laughs> I know, what a bizarre argument I'm having with myself here. Um, <laughs> He's queuing up questions he wants to be asked. <laughs> Somebody started a whole thread called The Best Snack in Poundland. Mm. James... He's asking what the best snack you can get in Poundland is. Oh, look, he's filled in loads of things with his interests. What a good boy he is. Uh, he said he's interested in Ron Seal, Fermat's penultimate theorem, Olivia Coleman, brandishing things. And his name's um, James, but he doesn't he doesn't have a surname or uh, any no. other Just James. given name. Just James. Like well, hello, hello, James. <laughs> Maybe it's the band. It could be. He says, um, is there, what is the best snack in Poundland? I tried their cherry brandy liqueur chocolates once and nearly didn't die. I'm not sure there's a definitive answer to this. Mm. And one of the most thrilling things about Poundland, Poundland is the lineup changes uh, virtually all the time. Uh, some of the best things, uh, some of the things we've had on the, on the show from Poundland, with uh, I think we had the, the honey, mon- honey monster honey waffles or whatever they were. I think, I think the question. <laughs> that, that's, I think the, is, 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 he wants to know what was the best. He what's wants Poundland's to know best? what is the classiest thing. That's what my question interpretation of that question would be. Like, what is the thing that you could buy from Poundland that looked at least like it was bought from Poundland? Uh, you can often get things that are uh, proper. You know, well, it's like little little does really nice chocolate. Sometimes you can get boxes. So, what do we have here? Should we, should we, should we kick off with these, Rose? So, so, well, I, I was—I uh, think it was probably in uh, WH Smith's in Waterloo. Actually, I was walking past the Sweet Isle and I saw a sort of Starburst I hadn't seen before. And I thought of you. What I have in my hand is a packet of Starburst smoothies. Uh, it boasts a range of flavours, including strawberry and banana, strawberry, blueberry, and yogurt. Uh, and mango and passion fruit. So that's that's all quite exciting. The astonishing historical perspective is that um, these actually predate the Starburst Tongue Tangles, oh, which, had a, which, which had a liquid centre, which had a liquid centre. Starburst yeah, smoothies date back to to summer of two thousand and nine. Mm, quite tasty. 
blueberry ones does taste a bit of blueberry. It does. I, I like the uh, sort of rippled effect as well. They've got, oh, they've are they quite textured? Fancy. Yeah, they've, they've oh, got some oh. different coloration going on. Look, there's only like three blues in the whole pack. That's such well, a swizz. They're clearly the best. They're not bad. I'm I'm not sure how difficult it is to come up with a new kind of Starburst, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, obviously, there's a limited amount of fruit that must exist in the world. And, um, you start putting them together in combinations of three, mm, exactly. where one of the three is yoghurt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the world's your oyster, really. But that's, this is a particularly good one, the blueberry with the, the rippled colour. Yeah, it, it looks and feels and sort of tastes like those drumstick sweets, doesn't it? In the States, there is literally thousands of... Uh, Starbursts of, oh, uh, of, of different Starburst flavours that we never have over here, wow. including tropical or something like that. Mm. So, like opal fruit. Oh, well, they are opal fruits, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But until until they bring down those bar- that that kind of protectionist yeah. um, <laughs> attitude or whatever it is, I, I, you know, I don't think we should give too much credence to whatever rubbish we're fobbed off with <laughs> here in here on Airstrip One, <laughs> as I'm sure they they refer to. Or oil comes up a lot or, in that conversation. Or EMEA territories is like uh, perhaps not a priority. You seem quite angry about it. I know. Um, what else do we have? I like, well, you know, continuing my international rant. Mm. Yeah. The Twix Fino. And I, I, I assume it's pronounced Twix Fino. Could be Fino, yeah. I'm now, seeing this everywhere at the moment. It's, yeah. it's, on, it's on the counter in newsagents in its own special box. Yeah. Or dump bins, as they Ooh. call them in WH Smith. Oh. <laughs> um, Lovely. How appetising. We previously sampled something similar to this that was sent in by Lee Maguire. And uh, when it was called the, the Twix Tropics, I think, or the Twix Topics. Basically, it's a biscuity Twix. It's, it's dusty. just air. It tastes, it tastes of nuts. It tastes of air. It's folded mm. over cleverly to make as much air inside the chocolate as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's entirely disappointing. It's I don't think twi- I've ever had anything as uh, distressing as this. <laughs> it's, it's the Twix that's had its bis- reacting to it. <laughs> it's a hollow biscuit. Imagine uh, the, the, a Twix with a biscuit. <laughs> That's just there to taunt you with its size. It doesn't exist. It's this, this, air in your mouth. Having an, an, an empty Cadbury's cream egg. It's <laughs> just biting in, and there's nothing inside. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we, we, we're going to try and out Clarks and each other now. So yeah. And do you know? Do you know who's responsible for this? It's women who don't like Twix with a proper biscuit inside it. Yeah, it does have that slight uh, flight light bar sort of quality oh um, it's just I've just tried to break a bit and it's fallen apart in my hand it's a lighter bite it's aimed at that same market as um, is it the, the, the Kinder Bueno the Mars the, the Mars Delight the, the Kit Kat Senses it's a straw is what it is <laughs> it's a straw that'd be great though dip it in tea you can suck Drink quite a lot through of tea it. through that yeah. mm. um, this, uh, this was brought back from Germany by Ben Moore hello Ben what he's brought back uh, from Germany uh, a couple of things uh, the first one he's, uh, he's identified he, he referred to it as the, as the Big Corny. Um, however, if you look at specifically the order <laughs> here, it's actually Corny Big. Which does seem a bit corny wrong, big. doesn't it? Mm, and then it, then it describes itself as Dunkle Shoko Cookies. <laughs> it looks quite chewy from the way you're, um, <laughs> you're pressing your thumbs it. into it. Yeah. Mashed it into pieces. Oh, my yeah, God. So it's, um, so it's a, it's a healthy-looking, grainy... Biscuity topping yeah. with some chocolate base to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like a breakfast cereal that's Ooh. been stuck together. Mm. Mm. Too sweet to be uh, health food. Oh, corny, as in it's made of corn, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, kind of, kind of corny. Maybe they thought Bitter. gross corny was uh, was not going to sell well in the <laughs> West. 
in Western Europe. Exactly. Well, you know, you don't see them over here, so... It's tasty, I mean... Mm. Well, you know, we're Enjoying finishing... Texture we're, we're, we're finishing it off. I'd rather have mm. this than the Twix Fino, I must say. Mm. Um, I mean, Considering you know, you know, one of the few confections that we know Germany for is probably, I don't know, the Pez machine and the Black Forest Gatto. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's great that the population aren't subsisting entirely on those. Mm-hmm. And on that <laughs> racist note... <laughs> Thanks, Dave. I'm Thanks. the pub landlord. You've been listening to <laughs> Snack Time. Is there something about... Because I'm just drawn to, like technology of 1979 to 1985 but I think it's like it's what we when we interviewed James Larson who's kind of an inventor and a collector and stuff and and he was saying that he's really into low levels of integration and he likes being able to see how everything works and there's and that and you're still working security but it must have changed so much says somebody who's currently wearing her acorn (laughs) t-shirt um unfortunately i didn't bring my commodore t-shirt or my my, um compreserve t-shirt yeah so t-shirt t-shirt wars yeah i mean when i bought my first computer that my dad had to assemble on the dining room table um it came with 4k of ram and if you wanted the other 4k which i did because i splashed out an extra 35 pounds of my hard-earned pocket money it came in a series of chips that my dad had to press into the board so you knew where things were it wasn't all in a closed case um, you knew where the wires were, you knew what did what because you'd seen them all, you'd probably bought them all and plugged them together. And of course, every computer, of which there were about 40 different things on the market, were all different. You had to know which one you had. Um, when you learned when you learned computers at school, you learned programming. So you knew about computers, you learned you knew about technology, you, you knew about things like binary. When I did when I did computer science for O level, we covered things like binary and stuff like that. Nowadays, um, using computers is things like using a word processor and using a spreadsheet, which is brilliant because you come out of school knowing how to use a computer, but what you don't know is how the whole thing works underneath. Mm-hmm. And when you get into a car to drive for the first time and you've got these pedals in front of you, two or three pedals, depending on what sort of car you've got, you've no idea what they actually do. And if and it's very hard to control the car. If someone showed you a cutaway of a car and showed you these clutch plates and showed you that when you move the clutch up and down, these clutch plates, what they were doing, you'd understand how it worked and you'd be able to drive a lot more smoothly. Mm. People don't do that with computing. You see a box, and people, which people call the hard disk, and of course it's not, and you've no idea what's in it. People don't see that underneath here is your hard disk and your RAM chips and your CD-ROM drive and what does what. And if that was taught more and if people in offices knew that more then I think there'd be a lot more sort of intelligence about the way computers worked you may remember um, Dr Alan Solomon he of Dr Solomon's antivirus toolkit when he started his company back in 1980 or whatever it was um, when you arrived to work at Dr Solomon's um, when you got there on your very first day whether you were a senior technician whether you were junior secretary whether you made the tea or whatever when you got there and you started work on the first day in the office on your desk was a pile of bits and a case, and you had to assemble your own computer. There were people there to help you, but you got a motherboard, you got some chips, you got a floppy disk drive, you got a case, you got a power supply, and you had to make your own PC. So there was nobody in that company from day one who didn't know what the various bits of a PC were. And I think that's wonderful. Robert Schifrin, whose name is a little bit like the name of our podcast, which is why you're here. Um, thanks so much. It's been really interesting hearing about Prestel and the old days and stuff. The security. Yeah, big wave of nostalgia. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. It's been great fun. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.